two young fish were swimming along when they met an older fish swimming the other way. The old fish nodded at the two younger fish and said, Morning, boys. How's the water? As he swam on by. The two young fish kept swimming in pensive silence until one of them finally looked at the other and asked, What is water? You know, sometimes you and I are like the two young fish. We have been in the church, in the Lord, in the faith, in the kingdom so long that we just don't notice it anymore. It becomes to us like water is to a fish. The blessings that should amaze us, the blessings that should awe us in our lives, and our life in the kingdom of God, they go unnoticed. We don't notice the water. And so we don't notice how great the water is, and so we don't invite anyone to swim along with us, to come and live alongside us in this incredible kingdom of God. And where that's true, and if it's true, and I know it's true in my life, at times we need to do something about it. We need to change that. There's no doubt about it. And the good news is there is a remedy for that. There's a remedy, a way to renew and to restore the amazement that should be yours and ours as citizens in the kingdom of heaven. And that remedy is by looking back. And as we look backward, that will cause us to look upward. And as we look upward, we will look outward. And those are three directions that all of us, as believers in Christ, need to be looking backward, upward, and outward. And that's what I want us to talk about as we come to the word of the Lord this morning. So if you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the one, the word of the one and only True and living God. Beginning in verse 26, this is the word of the Lord. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask again, as has been prayed and and sung, and pray now again that you, through the power of your Spirit, would teach us. Open our eyes to see your truth. Open our ears to hear it. Open our hearts to receive it, Lord. And by the power of your Spirit, we pray that you would transform our lives. Make us more into the people that you desire for us to be. For we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. we begin this morning, let's talk about looking back. If you'll look with me in verse 26, Paul writes there, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. This is Paul's call for the believers in Corinth to look back. And this is a little bit unusual for Paul, because Paul is usually a forward-thinking guy. Paul is usually an upward-thinking guy. He's the one who who says to, to press on, to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ, is calling us. Paul's the guy who says this, 
I focus on one thing, forgetting, forgetting what is behind and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on. So here's Paul, forward-thinking, upward-thinking guy, calling these believers, believers in Corinth to look back. He's calling them not just to glance back really quickly and then keep going. The little Greek here in verse 26 is a command, literally translated, look at, look at what you were. If you're reading from the NIV, as I did, it translates the word look, think. But it does that to capture uh, the the meaning behind this word. Uh, Looking means to, to concentrate your attention on the object at which you're looking, to process what you're looking at, to think about it, and to think of the impact that it has in your life. The object at which we are called to look here by Paul is our calling. And that's a noun, a thing, a calling, an invitation. Look at it. Look at your call. Look at your invitation. You and I could think of it this way. One day you go to your mailbox and you open it and you find inside a a high-quality embossed envelope with an official-looking seal on it. Well, far and away, this is the most interesting uh, thing in your mailbox, so you just drop everything else and you you look at, at this envelope and you open it. And you pull out the card that's inside it and you read the words printed on it and you see that it's an invitation. But then you reread the invitation because you can't believe what you read. But then you go to the envelope and you look back at the address because after you have read and reread the invitation, you are certain that it's been sent or put in your box by mistake. But the address on the invitation, it's correct. It's your address. The name on the invitation, it's correct. It's your name. And so you reread the invitation one more time because you've always been told that if anything sounds too good to be true, it usually is. And this is definitely too good to be true. And so one more time, you read the invitation and it says this. Everything is ready. Come to the banquet. Come take your place at the feast. And the invitation is signed, the king. Well, you look down at your clothes, you look back at your house, think about your life in general, the kind of job that you're going to go off to, the kind of people you're going to see, what you're going to do in the course of your life, and you begin to wonder why in the world would a king, the king, invite you to his celebration? You wonder, how does the king even know that I exist, my name, that I live at this address? What would he want me? Why would he want me at his celebration? And so you are excited and you're hopeful, and you're skeptical, all at the same time. So according to the instruction on the invitation, you show up at the royal palace, and you timidly hand your invitation to the doorman. But you don't look him in the eye, because you are convinced that this is the very moment when the gig is going to be up, and you're going to be exposed, and it will be discovered that a mistake has been made, and the doorman, with a suppressed laugh... (laughs) or a condescending smirk will politely send you away because the king could not possibly, and certainly not intentionally, have invited someone like you to his banquet. So the doorkeeper takes your invitation. He looks at your invitation, looks at you, looks at your invitation, looks back at you, and says, Welcome. Go right in. Your seat is right there by the king. 
So you go inside. And no matter where you look, as you enter in that room, you're stunned. Because everything about you and around you is so beautiful and glorious and magnificent. It's like nothing you've ever seen before. And then your eye catches the, the, the banquet table. And you have never in your life seen a table full of food like this before. And then you see the king. There he is. And you are blown away by his appearance. He is so majestic. He is so regal. He is so royal and, and charismatic and, and all those things that you, you can't believe it. But you hope that he's not looking at you. You hope that he's not looking at you because having seen the palace and having seen the table and having seen the king, you are now convinced that this is a huge mistake, that you are not supposed to be here. The doorman made a mistake. And when the king sees you, he's going to kick you out and he's going to fire the doorman for letting you in. But you look at the king and he is looking at you with this brilliant smile. And not only is he smiling at you, but he calls you by name and he says, Welcome, come, come, sit by me. Let's enjoy this feast together. No mistake was made. You're in the presence of the king. You're at the feast of the king because he wants you to be there. Because he invited you to be there. And not only that, the king is overjoyed that you are with him. And in that moment, you are so completely overwhelmed that you don't know whether to laugh or to cry in your utter amazement. But you know it's an invitation. You know it's a banquet that you should never, ever forget. And so when Paul calls the believers in the church at Corinth, to look at their calling, to look at their invitation. He's calling them to look back at the moment when all of this happened for them, spiritually speaking, to to look back at the moment when the Spirit of God unexpectedly worked in their hearts and called them, invited them to enter into a personal relationship with King Jesus. He calls them to look at and consider who they were and what they were. And where they were when this gracious call came to them. To look back and to remember the joy and the gratitude that they felt when they realized that the king of the universe noticed them. And considered that they had worth and value and that he wanted to be with them. Go back, says forward-thinking Paul. And think about that. Why? Because we so easily forget. And because familiarity breeds content, contempt. When Kathy and I moved to Charleston with our five children, we moved out of an 1,100-square-foot house into a 2,400-square-foot house. It was over twice as big as the house from which we had come. And we couldn't believe all the space. So for days, we just all kind of rambled around the house. And the amazing thing was, we didn't bump into each other. You know, and, and we couldn't believe it. I said, Kenny, this is amazing. I can't believe we're living in a house this big. What are we going to do, you know, with all of this space? But how long do you think it took us to fill the space up? Not very long. And how long do you think as the kids continued to grow, the, the amazement kind of 
wore off and it turned into to grumbling and fault finding and saying, you know what, this house is not big enough for us. We don't have enough space here in this house. Call Beth Plon, get her on the phone, tell her to find us a bigger house to move into. You know what I'm talking about. You felt the same way. Maybe, maybe you got a new car, a car that's new to you. You love it. You can't wait to drive it. Oh, I'll go, I'll go get it, I'll go get it. I'll run in here because you just want to drive your car. You love it so much. But not for so long. Because then you kind of get used to it, and at some point it becomes just a car, and you don't really even pay attention when you get into it. You just got to get from point A to point B, and so you get in the car, you don't wash it every week, and the interior of your car is just a trashed mess. And if you're still making payments on it, you kind of start to resent that car just a little bit. Well, what happened? What happened to the joy? What happened to the amazement? What happened to the driving experience? What happened to the amazement over your new car? At some point, the members in the church at Corinth had somehow gotten over They'd gotten over the amazement of their call. They'd gotten used to being in the kingdom. They were the young fish swimming around in the kingdom of God, but not paying any attention to it. They weren't awed by the call. They weren't awed that God would call them. They weren't awed by what their invitation cost. And that was the life of Jesus Christ. He had to die on the cross before the invitation could be even extended. And his death on the cross was the preparation that had to be made before the banquet could be served. But these Christians were no longer awed by the mercy or amazed by the grace that had saved them. And Paul knows this is true because he's gotten a report about what's been going on in that church in Corinth. And if you look back up in verse 10, you can see there as Paul describes that there's disagreement and division among those who were loved by and called by Jesus. There's no unity. There's no like-mindedness. There's quarreling. There is pride. People who were actually called by Jesus in this amazing relationship with him, they are forming cliques within the church. And, and members of this clique think they are spiritually superior to members uh, of the other clique. This cannot possibly exist among people who are looking at their call, their invitation. This cannot happen among people who are awed by the one who called them. This can only happen among people who have their eyes fixed on themselves and their own agendas and their own goals. This can only happen among people who are no longer dazzled by the kingdom of God who have grown so comfortable in it that they no longer notice it. And so the forward-thinking Paul sends them backward. You need to go back. You need to remember. Otherwise, you can't move forward. And you won't look upward, and you won't look outward. The very things that all of us need to do. And so I ask you this morning, as I ask myself, while I was working on this sermon, how amazed do you continue to be at your invitation? The call that Christ extended to you on a scale of 1 to 10. Rate your amazement, 10 being the highest, 1 being the lowest. What's your sense of amazement? Or are you asking, what's water? If you're right now anything less than amazed by God's gracious call, anything less than energized by that call, you've got to look back. Something is not right. Look back at Jesus and what he has done for you. And then when we look back at that moment, that's when we will look upward. That's what I want us to talk about next. The reason that we will look up is because the call, the invitation, 
The thing at which we are supposed to look is divine this way. It's, it's an invitation to experience a special privilege. That's what it is. And this word is used almost exclusively in Scripture to define something that is of divine initiative. And I want to give you a couple of representative examples from Scripture, how this word is used. It's used in Romans eleven twenty nine. It says, for God's gift and his call, his call, are irrevocable. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he, God the glorious Father, to which he has called you. Philippians three fourteen. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. In Christ Jesus. And one last one, Second Timothy, chapter one, verse nine. God has saved us. God has called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And so it's clear in the Word of God that the invitation, the call came to you, it came to me from God. It was by God's initiative. If it were the other way around, if you had called yourself, or if you had suddenly just decided you were going to call on God, then you would have yourself to thank for your good sense in making such a wise decision. But if God called you, if God initiated the call, if God did this wonderful thing that you had never even thought about, if you were shocked when you opened your mailbox and found the invitation, then all the thanks and all the glory and all the praise belongs to the Lord. And that, in fact, is what happened. The invitation that you and I received was initiated by God from first to last and was not based on anything that you did or I did or that we did not do. God called you because it pleased Him to call you. God called you because God said, I want you in my family. I want you as a son. I want you as a daughter. Look in verse 26. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. Paul isn't trying to insult the people here. He just wants them to look back at who they were so they will look up at what God has done for them. They must never, never, never forget who they were or what they were or where they were. When they received God's call. Look in verse 27 and 28. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. God can make the foolish, foolish, shame the wise. God can make the weak, Shame the strong. I'm so glad that God can do that. That he, that he can take that which is nothing, nothing at all. And make it into to what's pleasing to him. Make it into something that is fit to accomplish the good and perfect and well-pleasing will of God. He can do that. That's what he did at creation. God. Ex nihilo. Out of nothing. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. Things that didn't even exist. God created the universe. 
and everything in it, all the things that amaze us that we can see and the amazing things that we can't see, created by God out of nothing, that's what God can do. And that's what God does do with your life and my life. By God's choice, we have significance. By God's choice, we have purpose. By God's choice, he is not limited in what he can do in our lives. And God is not limited in what he can do with our lives. And that's why God gets the glory for what he has done. And so get out of the way. Get out of the way and let God have the glory. Stop trying to grab a little bit of it for yourself. If you're not still amazed that God would and could save you, you're not in the right place with the Lord. And your understanding of the gospel is not right. And if you think it took less to save you than it took to save someone else, because really, you know what, I didn't really need as much work as the next person. You know, I was almost there on, on my own. All I needed was just that little, little little boost, that little extra shove from God to get me across the line into the kingdom of heaven. And so many people believe that. Then you're not in the right place with the Lord and you have not yet understood the gospel. Maybe you are in the minority of people who are wise by human standards. Maybe you are one of the minority that is socially important or influential. But so what? Compare your wisdom. Compare your intelligence to the intelligence of the infinite God, the designer, creator, and the sustainer of the universe. Compare yourself to that and see how that turns out for you. Compare your wealth to the wealth of the king and and see how that works out for you. List all the important influential people you know and compare them to knowing the God of the universe and see how that works out for you. You know, you may be a few miles ahead of some other kinds of people that are in your life or around you, but you are light years away light years away, as we all are, from being able to get to God apart from His work in us. It costs the same thing to take care of your sins as it costs to take care of everyone else's sin, and that is the life of Jesus given on the cross. Every single human being who has ever, who is currently, or who ever will live, we all stand in equal need of the same thing to be saved. And that is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why all of us need to keep looking up. Look in verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our holiness, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so we look upward at the Lord Jesus Christ in all and thanks. So that we never, never, never forget that God, through Christ, has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Look up at Jesus so you never take it for granted. Look up so you never, ever ask, what's water? Because it ceased, you've ceased to notice or be awed by life in Christ and God's power on your behalf. And so we look back at Jesus. And we look up at Jesus. And then with the eyes of Jesus, we look outward. And that's what I want us to finish with quickly this morning, looking out.
King David got to the place that he wanted to look back. Because somewhere along the way, David had gotten used to the favor of the Lord. King David had gotten used to the Lord's blessing on his life. He'd gotten used to the grace and the mercy of the Lord. David had gotten used to playing king in the palace. And so I think living there as king king had become for David like fish living in the water. He just, he didn't really notice anymore. And so David became proud and David became entitled. And David wanted what he wanted and he thought he deserved to have what he wanted. And he wanted Bathsheba and so he got her. He wanted to keep Bathsheba, and in order to do that, he had to kill her husband so he could have her, and so he did that, or had that done as well. Because, see, David didn't look back enough. David didn't look back to the time where he was the most insignificant of his father's sons. The youngest one. The one not even worthy of introducing to other people. The one who was on the backside of nowhere, out alone on the hillside, taking care of his father's sheep. He was a shepherd. The lowest job that you could do. That's where David was. That's what he was. When God called him, David, you will be king of Israel. God's initiative. God's call at that place in David's life. David didn't look back enough. And he certainly didn't look up enough to remember That every day, every day it was by the grace of God that he was who he was and that he had what he had. But when David was confronted by his sin, he confessed that sin and he repented of it. And then he wrote these words in Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Lord, take me back. Lord, take me back. Restore the joy of your salvation. Repair the joy, Lord. Renew the joy. Lord, take me back to that place and to the joy that I had when you saved me, when you delivered me. And what is David convinced will happen when he looks back, when that joy is renewed and restored? David writes, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. That's David looking out. When he looks back and remembers the call, remembers the joy, the joy of his salvation, when he looks up and he says, Lord God, I'm nothing, shepherd boy, that you made a king by your power. Then David will look out. Look out with the eyes that we have of Christ to to see that there are other sinners who need the power of God at work in their life. Other sinners who stand in need of the salvation of the Lord. Looking back, let me tell you, it's one of the greatest motivations that you and I have for evangelism. When you go back, when you look back at your invitation, when you are overawed and overjoyed at what God has done for you in saving you, you will want to share the good news of the gospel with others And so will I. Looking back, looking up will make us want to to look out, to look forward, to look forward to the return of Christ. We will be motivated to make sure others are in the kingdom with us when the Lord returns. And looking up will remind us that as we extend the invitation, as we place the invitation 
in the hands of someone else, we leave it to God to open their eyes to be able to read it and their ears to be able to hear His call on their lives. And so I plead with you as I plead with myself this morning, we must look back at Jesus. We must look up at Jesus. And we must look out and forward to the return of Jesus and to bring others with us. Let's pray together. Father, now we take just a few moments just because we may not have time or remember to do it later today. To think back. To look back in just a few moments. To look up for just a few moments. And to look out for just a few moments. And so, Spirit of God, we pray that you will turn our hearts and our vision for our own lives in those directions. Father, I pray now that even in these few moments of silence where there has been a lack of awe and amazement and and joy for you over what you have done for us, I pray, as David prayed, that that joy and amazement would be restored. As we go out from this place, Lord, may we... Go not asking what is water, but may we go being amazed at your incredible grace in our lives. Lord, we pray that as we go now and always, Lord, that we would keep our eyes fixed upward at you. Forward, Lord, to your return, knowing that even today may be the day when you come and establish your kingdom here on earth. And Lord, as we go from this place, give us eyes to look out, to look around, to see those, Lord, who stand in need of your salvation. Lord, may we be eager to extend the invitation to them and trust, Lord, that you are the ones that would open their eyes to see and ears to hear your call on their lives. And Father, for those here this morning who have never heard that invitation. This may be the moment. This may be the, the very time where they open the box, Lord, and, and read of your invitation, hear of your invitation to repent of sin, to turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and to be invited, Lord, to that feast with you. That's for now and not only for now, but for all eternity. The Spirit of God be at work in their hearts. Cause them to be eager to accept your invitation. For we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.